Hello, horror and dark fantasy fans, and welcome to episode two of Jason Offutt's The Girl in the Corn. I'm Gabe Shear, and this is CamCat Unwrapped. Previously on The Girl in the Corn, six-year-old Thomas Cavanaugh encounters a beautiful fairy in his garden who begs him to follow her home. Throughout the next four years, the fairy visits his father's farm and Thomas's room and convinces him to follow her into the cornfield to battle an ancient monster that appears to him as his father. Enter Bobby, a disturbed young teen with a dysfunctional home life and a dark secret. The Girl in the Corn will resume after this short message from the CamCat team. Hey there, lovers of story. Do you find this book unputdownable? Are you itching to hear how it ends? Would you like to have a copy you can keep forever? This week, CamCat Unwrapped is hosting a giveaway. One lucky winner will receive the audiobook of The Girl in the Corn for free. All you have to do to enter is subscribe to our podcast, YouTube channel, or newsletter and answer a quick survey, all of which are linked in our bio. Each new subscription is one entry. That's it. It's that easy. Soon you can have your favorite CamCat audiobook in your ears and at your fingertips. So make sure you enter for your chance to win this book to live in. Enjoy! Part 2 Chapter 4 1994 1. The nurses at Sisters of Mercy Hospital were mean, whom Thomas's mom would call strict, but Thomas thought royal bitches fit better. He never said this aloud. Oh, no. He knew what that would get him. Nurse Carol sat in a plastic chair in the fifth-floor common room, her legs crossed, a yellow legal pad on a wooden clipboard on her lap. Six patients sat less straight-backed, less confident, less like they cared one bit. A familiar frown pulled the corners of Nurse Carol's mouth, and she scribbled on her notepad. We have a new member in our little group, she said, looking at the collection of teenagers doing their best not to look back at her. Robert Garrett. Mr. Garrett, do you know why you're here? Bobby, the new kid said softly. Call me Bobby. Okay, Bobby, Nurse Carol said. Do you know why you're here? Bobby shook his head, as if trying to dislodge a memory. He looked around the room. Everyone but Thomas looked away. I hit a boy in the head with concrete until he fell in the water and drowned he said flatly. And do you remember why you did that? Nurse Carol asked. Bobby shrugged. Because he was bad. Nurse Carol took a breath and let it out slowly. How was he bad, Mr. Garrett? Thomas sat up straighter when Bobby laughed. Nobody, not even the violent stabby patients, gave attitude to Nurse Carol. He took me into the trees and shoved his hand down my pants. Bobby stopped, his eyes dropping to his hands. He touched my... 
my thing. A boy named Mitchell snorted. Nurse Carol glared at him like she wanted to cut someone, then turned back to Bobby and faked a slight smile. And how did that make you feel? How did that make me feel? Burst from Bobby, his head turned up, staring into Nurse Carol's eyes. This kid I didn't know stuck his hand on my pants and fingered my dick. How do you think that made me feel? Thomas sucked in a breath and held it. Nobody yelled at Nurse Carol. Nobody. She never looked down as she wrote. There's no need to get excited, Mr. Garrett. Nurse Carol folded the bottom right corner of Bobby's page before flipping to a fresh one. You're safe here. Bobby shrugged, the fire apparently gone. He was just bad, so I made him not be bad anymore. Her frown returned. And how do you feel now? Thomas flinched as Mitchell started to rock in his chair next to him. Becca moaned and slapped herself. Something about Bobby was terrifying. Sad, Nurse Carol, he said. I feel sad. She made one final note, the scratch of her pen the only sound in the room. Thank you, Robert. Nurse Carol's eyes, like blue lasers, cut across the circle and settled on Thomas. How about you, Mr. Cavanaugh? Would you like to tell us why you're here? Nurse Carol asked, but it wasn't a question. He leaned back in his plastic chair, just like the others. The circle of patients all wore the same white polyester and cotton short-sleeved shirts, long pants and slip-on shoes. No shoestrings here, no siree. Thomas had been here three weeks, and every Tuesday and Thursday, he'd participated in this circle, listening to people talk about what they had done to be sentenced to this stupid hospital. Johnny had found his mother dead in the bathtub from a heart attack and lived with her body in the house for three weeks. After Jillian's stepfather raped her one too many times, her mother too weak from chemotherapy to stop him, she shoved a screwdriver through the asshole's eye and scrambled his brain. Mitchell liked to cut people, and when he couldn't find people to cut, he cut himself. His arms were crisscrossed with thin white scars. Becca just liked to set things on fire, like her grandma's house. Thomas woke almost every night screaming because of something he couldn't remember. Unlike most of the other patients in this ward, his parents put him here voluntarily. It had been four years since the incident, and seeing a therapist twice a week hadn't helped. He could leave whenever he wanted, but what he wanted was to stop screaming at night because of the events in a cornfield. He didn't want to remember those events. Oh, no. Whatever made him wake screaming, he didn't want to remember that at all. The reason I'm here today is the same as it was on Tuesday, Thomas said, his voice tired, too tired for a 14-year-old. But Mr. Garrett wasn't here on Tuesday, Nurse Carol said. Please, Mr. Cavanaugh. He exhaled. I was in an explosion when I was ten. He closed his eyes and tried to concentrate, but he couldn't remember more than he'd already shared. There was a coyote and a smiling man and somebody else, somebody behind me. Have you remembered who that was? Nurse Carol asked her legs crossed tightly. 
while playing cards, Johnny had told Thomas he'd like to get up under that skirt, but that was just gross, totally. Thomas shook his head. No. Nurse Carol scrawled something on her notepad. Hmm, what do you remember next? Next? She asks that every time, and every time I don't know. I was dead, he said flatly. There wasn't a white light, there wasn't a tunnel, I didn't see Jesus. Jillian giggled at the mention of Jesus. It was just dark, and I woke up to my mother performing CPR. He paused and looked around the group. Everyone's eyes were looking down at their lap, as usual, except the new kid. Bobby Garrett's eyes smoldered as they reached into his. A stab, like a pinprick, poked behind Thomas's eyes, jabbing into his brain, growing, spreading outward like plant roots. He wanted to slam his eyes shut, but they wouldn't close. Memories, He-Man, Star Trek, helping his dad on the truck, the plate with the shit, the fairy. A grin touched Bobby's lips when Nurse Carol stood. That's all for today, she said, blocking Bobby from Thomas's line of sight. The pain vanished, and Thomas slumped in his chair, his breath coming hard. We'll pick up here tomorrow. And she walked toward the nurse's station. When Thomas looked up, Bobby had already gone. Two. Thomas's screams jerked him awake. He shot up and swung his feet to the floor. Sweat soaked his hair, his lungs strained to catch a breath. The memory of the dream, like the memory of the night he died, was empty. The hall lights, dimmed for sleep, glowed steadily through the small window in the door. The window was wire mesh, nothing glass in this ward, nope, nope, nope. Nothing a patient could use to harm themselves or others. Nurse Carol gave him a notebook, not the spiral kind with a metal coil a creative person could use to inflict all sorts of damage, but a black and white speckled composition notebook he couldn't hurt himself with. She also handed him a blue felt tip pen. Everything at Sisters of Mercy was rounded, cushioned, and practically covered in bubble wrap. Safety first. This is for your dreams, Mr. Kavanaugh, she had said after his first Tuesday session. Tears invaded his story that day, and he stopped early. I don't remember, he repeated over and over. Nurse Carol slipped the notebook from beneath her wooden clipboard and handed it to him. We dream every night, but forget most of them. Some we remember right when we wake, but they quickly dissolve. She placed the marker in his hand. Keep these on the stand next to your bed, and as soon as you wake, record what you remember. This may help lead us to where we need to go. He kept the notebook on the nightstand, and every time he woke screaming, the horror of darkness still pressing against him, he put the pen to paper and let his hand move. He drew circles, always circles, circles with teeth. Three. Breakfast in the psych ward at Sisters of Mercy was usually some combination of oatmeal, powdered eggs, fried potatoes, sausages, and or cereal with a cup of milk or juice. Orderlies served it in the rec room on cafeteria tables wheeled out from a large closet 
and unfolded by Ted, the janitor. There was no coffee, there was no tea. Caffeine made people jumpy, and that's one of the many things the nurses at Sisters of Mercy did not want. Thomas accepted his tray of eggs, potatoes, and sausages, and a plastic cup of milk. He sat at the farthest end of the farthest table from the nurse's station. They could watch him cry, they could watch him sleep, they could watch him poop. But for some reason, Thomas didn't want the nurse on duty to watch him eat. Jillian slid her tray onto the table across from Thomas. Oatmeal and raisins with a cup of apple juice for her. She tried to smile, but her eyes twitched like a rabbit's. Hey, Thomas said. I like your hair today. It was usually flat and lay across her eyes like a sheepdog's, but something was different about it that day. Staring at her oatmeal, Jillian swiped a lock of red hair behind her ear. Her cheeks flared pink. Gingers could never hide their emotions. Thank you, she said, squeezing a small plastic packet of maple syrup onto her oatmeal. The nurse, uh, not Nurse Carol, uh, Madison the young one, she uh, cut my bangs, she said, stirring her breakfast with a plastic spoon. Given another place, another situation, Thomas may have thought Jillian liked him, but he woke every night screaming, and from what he could hear down the hall from behind his locked door, so did she. Her bastard stepfather didn't just leave bruises, those were long gone. He left much deeper marks. Well, it looks nice. The easiest way to get a girl's attention is to say something nice about the way she looks, his mom had told Thomas before last semester's eighth grade dance. That was before no one could take the screaming anymore, and he wound up at Sisters of Mercy. Thank you, Jillian said, looking up from her breakfast, the spoon still stirring. But his mom never told him what to do after he had their attention. He stabbed his reconstituted eggs and took a bite. What do you think of the new guy? Oh my gosh, shot from her mouth, her left hand stretched across the table to touch Thomas's arm. She realized what she'd done and pulled it back. Thomas didn't know what he'd expected, but he hadn't expected that. Her face grew pink again, so did his. He's creepy. Yeah, he is. He talks about bad people a lot, she said, her voice low. There was something else there. Excitement? Maybe. He thinks everyone's bad but him. You don't have problems, I don't have problems. That guy has problems. Thomas hid his mouth in his wrist to mask his laughter, but Jillian saw it and smiled. The smile was gentle, beautiful. Damn that son of a bitch who put her in here. Then the smile fell. But I was talking with Becca after showers and... And... Jillian stopped, her voice seemingly choked by a fist. Thomas leaned closer. What? he whispered. Jillian looked around the room before speaking. She told me he asked her to play Uno, and he told her not to play a draw four. Yeah, Thomas said. Nobody wants to get hit with a draw four. She stirred the spoon through her breakfast. No, she hadn't played the card. It was still in her hand. She was going to play the draw four, but Bobby looked at her with those scary eyes of his and said, play the blue seven. So? 
Don't you get it? She said, shoving a spoon of oatmeal into her mouth. She was going to play the draw four, and he knew she had a blue seven. He knew which cards she had. He knew. Wow, that was loud. Thomas looked around. Nurse Madison, on duty at the nurse's station, looked up from her magazine and frowned. Thomas's attention dropped back to Jillian. What are you saying? He whispered. He's psychic? Mind reading isn't real. Jillian fell quiet, stabbing her oatmeal. Thomas toyed with his eggs a few moments before changing the subject. I have my one-on-ones with Johnny, he said. Afterward, he talks about porking Nurse Carol. Jillian laughed out loud. A raisin flew from her mouth and landed on the table. She immediately hid her face in her hands. Thomas didn't turn from her because he knew what he'd see. The few people in the room looking at them, he didn't care. The pink flush was slow to leave her face. I'm getting out of here soon, he said, pushing his fork through his food. But you're still screaming at night. It's been five months. If this place hasn't fixed me by now, it isn't going to. Thomas's attention dropped to his plate. He sawed at the over-microwaved sausage patty with his fork. Fixed? What is fixed? I feel fine, except at night when the... The what comes? What is it? Why can't I remember? I'm getting out of here in a month, Jillian said softly, staring at her food. I'm going to live with my aunt. Thomas hadn't told anyone he was here voluntarily. He didn't think anyone would accept him if he did. You think maybe we could do something? Jillian continued. You know, like when we get out, see a movie or something? Thomas froze. A date? Jillian was asking him to go out on a date? Yeah, he said. Sure. It wasn't until much later he realized the mental ward of a hospital probably wasn't the best place to meet girls. 4. The screaming from the kid who died dragged Bobby from sleep like it did every night, breaking the dream of his parents lying bloody and lifeless in the basement. In the dream, Bobby stood over them, holding the heavy lamp that usually sat on his bedside table. He always woke with a smile. The room was cold. It was at least 90 degrees outside in the Missouri summer, so why the hell did it have to be so cold in here? Bobby stood and walked to the wire window on the padded door. Hey, kid, he said into the dim light of the hall. It was never dark at Sisters of Mercy. You, kid who died in the cornfield. Silence. I know you're awake. What do you want, Bobby? Bobby leaned into the door padding, trying to get as close to the dead kid as possible. He could feel him better that way. He knew the boy had sat up. Do you know why you scream at night? Bobby asked. The dead kid was processing the question he knew. In his head, he just knew. This was a mystery. A mystery for the boy, for his parents, for Dr. Tamarin, Nurse Carol, everyone, everyone, but... But who? Bobby's mind felt someone else, someone other than the people here at the hospital. The dead alive boy had met a little girl who changed his life. 
a little girl that wasn't a little girl. No, Thomas said, I don't. Bobby grinned. I do. The dead kid's face appeared in the mesh window of his own door. What do you mean? I know why you scream, Bobby said, his voice low. A second went by, then two. No, the kid said, you don't. Now leave me alone. His face disappeared from the window. It's the mouth, Bobby whispered in a snake-like hiss. He didn't know what the mouth was, but he knew the boy thought about it, and he knew it was good, wickedly good. Bobby wondered if that mouth was the one that spoke to him at the lake. The mouth with all the teeth. It came that night. It killed you, Thomas Cavanaugh. It killed you dead. Bobby hadn't known about the mouth with the teeth. It just came to him. Things always came to Bobby, right when he needed them. Like that chunk of concrete when he'd met the bad boy. What are you talking about? Thomas asked, his voice growing impatient. The girl led you to Doither, and that monster killed you in the cornfield, Bobby said. It was all coming to him from somewhere, a place he woke from one night in wet sheets. A place in the corn, a place where blood flooded his mouth. But it's gone now, Thomas. You can sleep. Lie down and go to sleep. You won't scream anymore. Bobby knew that wasn't true. Now that he had sensed this monster doither through the dead alive boy, something the dead alive boy named Thomas couldn't even remember, Bobby felt almost happy. Doither was far, far away, but not too far away to speak to him. You were there. Bobby dropped onto his bed and pulled the white sheet up to his neck. He slept. Five. I haven't screamed in a week, Thomas told his parents when they came to visit. They sat in the rec room. All the plastic chairs pushed under two-person tables. The cafeteria tables wiped down, folded, and wheeled back into their locked closet. Mitchell and Bobby played checkers in the corner. I want to come home. That's great, Tommy, his dad said, hands in his lap. His dad was always uncomfortable in this room. If you're sure, Thomas nodded. I had private therapy, group therapy. They tried me on six different pills, and finally it's gone. He looked into his parents' faces. I know this is costing you guys a lot, even with insurance. I... His mom reached across the table and gently took Thomas's hands in hers. We're doing okay, she said. With the money your dad's going to make teaching, and with the farmland we sold... You sold the farm? Thomas shouted. Mitchell and Bobby turned to look at him. Nurse Carol stirred at the nurse's station. Thomas pulled his hands out of his mother's grip. No touching, Thomas said, softer. Rec room rules. We didn't sell the farm, son, his dad said. But now that I'm going to teach, I won't have enough time for as many row crops, so I sold the acres down by the river. That was Grandpa Cavanaugh's land. I thought you said that would mean you weren't a real farmer. Thomas knew the words were harsh, but he meant them. His dad opened his mouth to speak, but his mom touched his arm, and he stopped. Did you sell it because I'm in here? He asked. I'm cured. I'm coming home. You can buy it back. Anger flushed Thomas's face. 
It's my fault. His dad smiled and shook his head. You had nothing to do with this, son, even though I'd sell the whole farm to take care of you and your mom. The farm isn't paying for itself, and the way things look, it isn't going to. I knew I'd probably have to do this someday. Thomas's sudden rage began to drain. His dad was right. Now maybe the house would be happier. He smiled a lie at them. Take me home, he said. Six. Damn it. The dead alive boy was going home. Bobby sat at the desk in his room, drawing circles on a legal pad with a red crayon, the only writing instrument Nurse Carol would allow him. Kavanaugh hadn't told him. Hell no. They weren't friends, and something deep inside Bobby told him they never would be. The whispers had told him, coming from nowhere, from no one, like they always did. They had hit in a violent shove, a shove only high emotion could muster. Other thoughts drifted to Bobby in gentle waves. From his parents? Were Mommy and Daddy Kavanaugh here to pick up their baby boy? Mommy? No, that's not right. He called her Mom. And her name was a D-something. Denise? No, no. Deb? Debbie? Deborah? Yes, Deborah. And his dad? Kyle. That sucker's mind was as open as a 24-hour grocery store. Bobby rose from the desk, his feet moving on their own, before stopping at the open doorway to his one-bed padded paradise. He sensed the dead-alive boy before he walked past Bobby's door. See you soon, Tommy boy, Bobby called after him, walking back to his desk before Thomas could react. Bobby picked up his crayon and frowned. The circles he'd drawn had smiles, all filled with needle-sharp teeth Bobby couldn't remember drawing. Seven. Thomas found Jillian in her room, reading a dystopian YA novel. She sat up when he appeared at her open door. He couldn't walk in. It was against the rules. Hi, she said, trying to smooth her messy hair. Hey. Thomas didn't know what to say. Well, he knew what to say. He just didn't know how to say it. How do you tell a girl you're probably never going to see her again? My parents came to get me. Her face fell slack. Today? You're going home today? He nodded. Thomas didn't know why, but at that moment he realized he liked her back. A lump formed in his throat. Yeah, he said, then coughed into his fist. They just told me. I'm going to, well, you know, miss you. A tear rolled down Jillian's face. Me too. She rustled through some papers and handed Thomas a small notebook and a blue felt-tip marker. Give me your address so I can write to you. Thomas smiled and wrote it down. That'll be nice, he said. Eight. Bobby sat on the edge of the thin mattress of the hospital bed, his cold, dark eyes staring blankly into the hallway. Something bounced around his head. A name. Doither? Bobby didn't know what doither meant. Not exactly. But the dead-alive boy was afraid of it. No, he was terrified of it. 
that only made the concept even more delicious. The image in Tommy Boy's mind looked like a farmer standing in a cornfield, thunder crashing in the distance, lightning electrifying the night. That image, that dark, wet, terror-filled image was what latched on to Bobby. He knew that image. I was there. Thomas passed by Bobby's door on his way to his parents, who stood whispering in the common room, wondering if taking little Tommy was the right thing to do. Ha, Bobby thought. I've seen inside his head. Your boy ain't right. He closed his eyes and watched the Kavanaugh's being escorted out of the mental ward of Sisters of Mercy and toward the elevator to sign all the discharge papers downstairs. The elevator door shut, and Bobby's eyes popped open. Jillian, he said, and stood. He knew what Kavanaugh thought. He knew what Johnny thought. Oh, the things that boy wanted to do with Nurse Carol. He could even read what Nurse Carol thought, and Nurse Carol was afraid of him, scared. But Jillian? Bobby couldn't see inside her head. Not at all. He stepped into the hall. Bobby found the red-haired girl lying on her bed, reading. He stopped outside her open door, but didn't step in. Nope, nope, nope. Ward policy. Don't go into another patient's room. Hello, Jillian. Her head snapped toward him, her eyes hard. Go away, Bobby, she said, and turned back to her book. Your boyfriend's gone, Jillian. He licked his upper lip. Who are you going to share breakfast with now? She slid a piece of paper in as a bookmark and held the book in both hands. She sat up and glared at him. You don't have the right to use my name. Oh, this is fun. So fun. So very, very fun. But why can't I read your stupid thoughts? I see things, he said, leaning against the doorframe. So do I, Jillian said. Like right now, I see an asshole. A rush of anger blew over him, but Bobby clenched his fists and choked it back. Your boyfriend has experienced things, he said, his teeth clenched. A storm, a farmer, a bad, bad farmer, a coyote. Bobby stopped and inhaled, the vague memory of running on four legs, the endless energy, the strength, the sharp teeth, the taste of blood. The bad farmer is called the doither. The book Jillian held slipped from her hands and slapped onto the floor. Yes, oh yes, 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 she knows something. She knows it, she knows it, she knows it. He wrapped his arms across his chest and squeezed, trying to hold in the giggles. You know that name, don't you, Doither? What does that mean? Jillian fished the book from the floor with shaking hands, never breaking eye contact. The stifled laughter in Bobby's chest was almost painful. You know, he said, trying to keep his voice down. The nurses couldn't come by now. Bobby was having too much fun. Will you tell me, please? Shut up. Her words held no force. I can't quite figure you out, Jilly Ann, he said. I have a way of knowing things. I know Becca thinks you're a bitch. I know your little boyfriend is so in love with you, he almost pisses himself whenever he talks to you. And I know I can't read you. Why? Jillian shot to her feet. Because I don't want you to, Robert. 
She stepped toward him, her hands and fists at her side. You're a pestilence, a bug, an infestation, and I will. A flash of lavender fire burst from her hands. Bobby stepped back. Did I see that? Not. The door to her room rattled. Be poisoned by you. Jillian was in front of Bobby in a blur of motion, and the door slammed in his face, the metal surface less than an inch from his nose. He stood outside the door until Nurse Madison came down the hall and shooed him to his own room, where he crawled beneath his covers. He hadn't seen the door coming toward him. With Jillian, he couldn't see anything at all. Part 3 Chapter 5, 1999 1. Thomas sat on a cracked plastic chair in Griffin Coin Laundry, drinking rum and coke through the straw of a 44-ounce convenience store cup. Thomas's screams had stopped in 1994, but not the dreams. Nightmares of a black figure pulling him through the dark cornfield. Coyotes yipping from the shadows. Did the coyotes chase them? No, something else was out there. Something dark, looming, something that was all teeth. Teeth like needles, like a lizard's or a dragon's. He took a deep drink and set the cup on the concrete floor. The laundromat was quiet, save for the dryer with his clothes. The cheap Bacardi knockoff flavored his drink, but barely. He had homework, so he poured it weak. Thomas leaned back, pawing through his psychology textbook, highlighted from past users. The door of the laundromat opened, and a family tumbled in, a mother with four children. He flipped to chapter three. Erickson's Stages of Psychosocial Development. Professor Allison hadn't scheduled a quiz on the reading, but that didn't mean she wouldn't give one. A hot wind brushed his arms, and Thomas looked up. The entry door, on a pneumatic hinge, automatically closed behind the family. There was no wind. The oldest child, a boy, sat next to his mother on a bench, eyes pinned to his lime-green Game Boy color. Two of the girls sat at a small table with a deck of Uno cards. The mother's fingers fidgeted, her face drawn and pale. Thomas's gaze darted around the laundry. There'd been another child, he was sure of it. He flipped a page with his thumb and focused on his textbook. The scent of a spring garden drifted past. No. A few lines down the page, his eyes passed over the words trust versus mistrust, psychosocial stage one, and the skin of his neck crawled, bristling his hair. A push, almost like a physical intrusion into his thoughts, rushed into his head. He knew that feeling. His fists locked on the textbook, his gaze darting around the room. The machines agitated and spun. The older Uno girl played a red draw, too. The boy jabbed buttons on his Game Boy. And the mother, oh God, the mother. The skin drew back on her face, her mouth frozen in a clown grimace, her eyes bulged from their sockets. When you leave a window open, you never know what may come through. God damn it, he hissed. The boy looked up from his Game Boy, but only for a moment. 
Hello, Thomas. The little girl's words forced their way inside his head. He nearly shouted, but instead turned to look behind him. The little girl from his room, the little girl from the cornfield, stood only a few feet from him. Her red hair hung in a loose ponytail, her white dress the same she'd worn the night he died. Thomas was twenty years old, but she was still a child. The textbook slid from his hand and slapped closed onto the floor. The girl laughed. A scent drifted from her, the musty, claustrophobic smell of a cornfield. She giggled. I want to say hello. She cocked her head and bit her bottom lip. It's been so long, so very long, Thomas. I've missed you. The buzzer on Thomas's dryer sounded. A slight burst of urine soaked into his already dirty boxers. He jumped to his feet, but when he turned to face the girl again, she was gone. Shaky hands grabbed the textbook and shoved it into his duffel bag. He stuffed his clothes in after it. Flinging the strap over his shoulder, he picked up his drink, threw open the door, and stepped into a world of silence. No cars moved on the street, no pedestrians on the sidewalk, no horns, no yelling, no trill of pigeons. A sheet of paper caught by the wind hung unmoving in the air. What the hell? It was a whisper. Then a noise, the giggle of a child, came from behind him. The hair on his head bristled, and he turned, stepping back inside the building. The dryers, the washers, the children playing Uno, were frozen. The little girl stood in the center of the laundry and smiled at Thomas. A shout burst from him as he fell backward out the door into the honking of a car horn, the laugh of two women emerging from a coffee shop, each with a to-go cup of something. Thomas landed with an oof on top of his duffel, the drink in his hand still trapped in styrofoam. A shadow loomed over him. The girl? The last time she was here, all hell had broken loose. Two. It took four beers for Boyd to ask Kyle about Thomas. His nephew had become a sensitive subject. He's okay, I guess, Kyle said, leaning back in one of the reclining deck chairs Deborah bought a few years back. Still struggling in college. Still delivering sandwiches, far as I know. The crack of a beer tab, loud in the early evening. Boyd took a drink. College isn't for everyone, he said. The world needs mechanics, electricians, plumbers. We'd be in shit shape without plumbers. Kyle cradled his own beer in both hands, his attention on the field. Soybeans this summer. The spot where the anhydrous tank blew still bare after so many years. He's got so much potential. The aluminum can crinkled in Kyle's hands. He just, he just, he just needs to figure it out, that's all, Boyd said. All you need is for him to be happy. You don't need him to save the world. Kyle fished another beer from the 12-pack between them and rolled the sweating can between his palms before answering. Maybe I do. I want him to do better than I did. Boyd upended his can, draining it. That's your problem, not his, he said. I know what you're going to say. I don't have any kids of my own, so how do I know? The can slipped and fell to the porch with a clank. I had a dad too, you know. 
He worked as a police officer in St. Joseph 30 years before setting roots back down in the country. He didn't want me to do this. He wanted me to be a doctor. Boyd grunted as he bent to grab his empty can. But that wasn't going to happen, he continued. I just wished he'd lived long enough to see me become sheriff. That might have been okay with him. Kyle moved to hand Boyd another can. You think he'd have voted for you? <laughs> Not a chance, he said, waving off the beer. Boyd grunted as he pushed himself to his feet. The dinner of pork steak and fried potatoes had filled about as much room as he had to fill. His brother-in-law held the beer can out again. This time, Boyd took it. What's the hurry anyway? Kyle asked. It's a nice night. The sheriff slid his felt hat onto his head. The rim pushed up to his hairline. It is, but I need to head for home. KC's playing tonight. You know the Royals won't lose unless I watch. How many games you catch a year? A grin teased the corners of his mouth. Every single one. Three. The day seemed normal. Traffic, pedestrians, someone shouting, Hey, Kenny, wait up, somewhere down the street. A pigeon fluttered to rest on a street lamp over his head. What the hell had happened in the laundromat? The shadow above him loomed closer. Thomas? A voice called from above. Thomas Cavanaugh? He looked up. A woman stood over him, her features silhouetted by the sun. Uh, yeah? She brushed a loose string of hair behind her ear. You don't remember me? A hand moved to her face. Oh no, you don't, do you? Thomas pulled himself to sitting. Dear God, it was Jillian. Jillian, he whispered. You're, you're grown up. A laugh, the sound of a breeze through wind chimes, drifted from her, and she held out a hand to him. He took it, and she pulled him to his feet. That happens. It's been five years. She cocked her head as she inspected his face. But it doesn't seem like it. I always felt you were with me. A nudge, like the one he'd felt in the laundromat, pushed into his mind, and the little girl's voice was there for only a moment. Bye-bye, she said, then was gone. Come on, Jillian said. There's a coffee shop down the street. Before Thomas could say anything, she looped an arm through his. He bent and grabbed his duffel bag before she led him away. Jillian ordered an Earl Grey tea. Thomas worked on his rum and coke, hoping like hell he could hold his act together. They sat down at a little round table next to the front window. How come you stopped writing letters? Thomas asked. His thumbnail, which needed trimming, made shallow cuts in the styrofoam cup. Jillian pulled her hair out of her face and tucked it behind her right ear a motion he'd seen over and over at Sisters of Mercy. She forced a smile. She'd never smiled much at the hospital, but of course there was never much reason to smile. My Aunt Jackie got me out of the hospital like she promised, Jillian said. But I lost your letters in the move. You knew my last name, Thomas said. You knew where I lived. You could have found my address. He took a long drink of rum and coke. The rum was doing its trick. He could hardly taste it anymore. Jillian looked down at her tea. I'm sorry. 
I'd been out of the hospital for more than a year. I moved to a new town, a new high school. I had a lot to get used to. Then I... I... She stopped, raising and lowering the teabag a few times. After a few months, I just got embarrassed that it had been so long since I'd contacted you. It was easier not to try. She looked up from her drink. I've missed you, Thomas. A shiver ran through him. Those were the exact words the little girl in Griffin Coin Laundry had said just minutes ago. A couple holding hands walked by on the sidewalk. A bird lit on the back of a bench, then flew away. Thomas breathed deeply. The soft aroma of brewing coffee settled in the air. The tension began to bleed away. Everything's fine, dude. The world is a normal place. It's normal. Thomas's gaze flitted nervously back and forth between Jillian and the window. He half expected the little girl to press her face to the glass and smile at him, her goblin mouth sending piss down his legs. Jillian reached across the small table and grasped Thomas's hands. Her hands felt soft, warm. The darkness, the panic, slowly began to pass. He looked into her eyes. Was there concern? Yes, of course she's concerned. I'm sweating. Did you ever see that movie we'd talked about? She asked. Ace Ventura, right? Thomas took a deep breath and let it out slowly. Not at the theater, he said as calmly as he could muster. But yeah, I saw it. A frown washed over his face. You? Jillian shook her head. No, I never did. She bit her bottom lip. Thomas tried to control his breathing. In and out, just in and out. I have it, you know. Ace Ventura on VHS. It's back at my apartment. As the opening credits rolled, she climbed on top of him and peeled off his clothes. Thomas wasn't going to say no. She was eager, almost hungry. Thomas had not expected that from a girl who'd been through what she had. That was years ago, but still, it left a mark. Jillian moved in a week later. They never watched the movie. 4. The Ford Taurus, a 95, Boyd figured, weaved across Route N. The driver either lost, stupid, half asleep, or drunk off his ass. Maybe all of the above. Except, as his headlights hit the rear of the car, Boyd thought he knew who it belonged to. Light evergreen metallic, Clinton Gore 96 sticker faded and peeling on the left rear bumper. It swerved into the left lane, its tires grinding gravel on the thin shoulder, before the driver overcorrected and jerked it hard to the right. The passenger tires hit the right shoulder, gravel dust misting into the early evening air. No, can't be. He grabbed the mic and clicked the push-to-talk bar. Dispatch, this is Boyd. Yes, Sheriff, the voice crackled from the other end. Aaron worked the board tonight. Run me a plate. He pressed the accelerator, hard enough to read the plate, but not too close. Missouri, 555 Bravo Romeo India. Slight static ran across the speaker before the dispatcher said, Yes. Missouri 555 Bravo Romeo India belongs to an Elvin R. Miller, 67, Easton, Missouri. Holy cow. Boyd eased up on the accelerator, letting the Taurus move a safer distance ahead. No way. Sir, 
Aaron asked. Everything okay? Boyd hesitated before he clicked into the mic. Everything's fine. Thanks, dispatch. Over. But nothing was fine. Elvin Miller drifting all over the highway like he was drunk? Boyd flipped on the flashing lights and hit the siren. The Taurus's brake lights lit red, and the vehicle slowed, finally coming to a rest half on the shoulder, half in the ditch. The snap of the safety strap on Boyd's holster clicked as he stepped from his car onto the graying asphalt of the rural highway. Elvin, or whoever it was, had the car in park, he hoped. At least it wasn't moving anymore. Boyd hated stops like this. Sure, when he was a deputy, guns blazing, dirty, hairy stuff was fun. But now he just wanted to get home and watch the baseball game. Boyd grabbed his mag light. He moved closer. The driver's side window was down. Elvin, Boyd said, his voice even. Is that you? Boyd, the driver barked back. God damn it, Elvin. What have you gotten yourself into? Yeah, it's Boyd, Elvin. You got anyone else in that car? No, Boyd, Elvin slurred. Got nobody. Just me and my buddy Jim. Boyd stepped closer to the car, quiet for such a large man. Who's Jim, Elvin? Boyd called out, gripping the handle of his service revolver. Academy stuff. Jim Beam, baby, Elvin slurred. His right hand slapped the dash. Is that crazy bastard laughing? No, Boyd realized. Elvin Miller was crying. I'm coming up to your door, Elvin, Boyd said. Gotta tell you, you're making me a little nervous out here, buddy. Everything okay? Elvin's shoulders slumped, and a hand started toward the open window. Boyd began to pull his weapon from the holster, hoping like hell he didn't have to shoot Elvin Miller. Elvin's hand pushed through the window in slow motion, as if it went through something solid. His hand held a half-empty fifth of bourbon. Fucking Jim Beam. The bottle dropped to the pavement onto its side, the copper liquid spilling out onto the highway. Boyd released the grip on his revolver and clicked on his flashlight, stepping even with the window. The back seat was empty. Elvin was alone. Thank you, Christ. What's going on, Elvin? He asked, slipping the pistol back into the holster. You've, uh, you've been drinking tonight. The man's eyes looked up to meet Boyd's, streaked with red in Boyd's flashlight, his cheeks wet from tears. When's the last time you tied one on? Boyd asked, resting his left elbow casually on the Taurus's roof, his right hand holding the flashlight. Fifteen years? Twenty? Elvin raised his thin arm above his face and waved. Twenty, twenty-two, twenty-two years. His head slumped forward onto the steering wheel. I've been sober twenty-two years. His body shook with sobs. The next words came out in a whisper. Twenty-two years. Boyd shook his head. Jesus Christ. What happened? He reached into the car and rested a hand on the drunken man's shoulder. Why tonight, Elvin? A drunken sigh seeped from Elvin. His head lolled back toward the headrest. God damn it, he slurred. My boy is dead. She told me. She told me my boy is dead. Tanner? 
Tanner's been gone since 1992. I know. Elvin's eyes latched onto Boyd's. He died in Iraq because of that goddamn Saddam Hussein and that friggin' George Bush. Blown up by a roadside bomb for no reason, Boyd. No reason. She came tonight. She came by the house and told me. She showed me Tanner. He was in the back of a Humvee. The woman walked out on the dirt road, and the soldier driving it stopped. Then that woman blew up. You ever see an Iraqi with red hair? That red-haired woman blew up, Boyd. Tanner's face was gone, and... Boyd's hat tipped back against the doorframe as he leaned in closer. The bourbon was sour on the man's breath. She told you? Who is she? Elvin exhaled and dropped deeper into the driver's seat. What? What? Who is she? Who told you? The little girl, Elvin said. Little girl? Boyd leaned hard onto the window frame of the Taurus. What little girl? Tears welled again. Elvin's face pulled tight. The little girl with red hair. She wore a white dress streaked with, with blood. It was covered in blood, he whispered. The girl with the smile. The smile of needles. I think she's the devil, Boyd. Five. Boyd drove the patrol cruiser in silence, with Elvin drifting in and out of sleep in the passenger seat. The drunken man should be in the back of a squad car in cuffs on his way to lockup, but Boyd was headed for Elvin's house. He'd call dispatch later and have the morning shift pick up the Taurus and take it to Elvin's place. Elvin wasn't at fault tonight. Not really. Boyd thought he knew who was. The sheriff's grip tightened on the wheel as he counted the dash lines in the center of the highway. Fourteen, fifteen, sixteen. Anything to keep his mind off what Elvin, drunken Elvin, had told him. Boyd knew his hands would shake like Elvin's if he took them off the steering wheel. Elvin had threatened to kill his wife twenty-two years ago and woke the next morning with the worst curse of a drunk. He remembered everything. That night he attended the local AA meeting and never drank again. Until today. The girl. The little girl with the smile of needles. The little girl had stood in his nephew's bedroom, her white dress streaked with dirt and sweat and blood, her mop of red hair pulled back in a ponytail. That day, today, needles. Her teeth were sharp needles. A light appeared through a stand of elms, Elvin's house, where Lorraine waited for her husband. A tug, somewhere in the back of Boyd's head, shook off the beer he'd had at Kyle and Debbie's. It was the same tug that told him to check the trunk when he pulled over anyone who didn't look local. The tug that led him to that girl's body in the well on the Sanderson property. Damn it. He turned into the gravel lane leading to Elvin's house and parked next to an old Chevy pickup. The house was lit, like the Millers expected company. Come on, come on, Elvin mumbled, his face pressed against the window. A line of drool leaked down the glass. Elvin! Boyd lay a heavy hand on the man's shoulder and shook. Elvin, wake up, you're home. His passenger shifted, then sat up straight. Lorraine! Elvin mumbled, his eyes wild, the scent of bourbon heavy in the cab. He scratched at the handle and threw the door open. 
Shit, Boyd hissed and burst after Elvin, who stumbled up the porch steps and into the house. The screen door slammed behind him. Boyd followed and stepped into a nightmare. Blood pooled on the floor. A spray pattern splattered the floral print couch and the ceiling. The stench of copper was heavy. Elvin fell to his knees on the hardwood, dropping to his elbows in front of Lorraine, an axe next to her in a red, murky puddle. Her face split. Lorraine, Elvin wailed, reaching out to hold a hand that couldn't hold back. Lorraine. Jesus. That was all Boyd could muster. He reached for his shoulder mic, but stopped as his hand neared it. On the wall, past the body of Lorraine, past a pile of what he assumed were Alvin's gore-soaked clothes, was a picture painted in blood. Boyd moved forward, only a step, keeping Elvin in front of him. The drawing, painted by a small hand, was childish. A circle and two lines for lips curved into a smile. It wasn't a friendly smile. It was a smile of thin, pointed needles. Chapter 6 1999 1. Jillian's feet, warm from a night under a thick comforter, slipped under Thomas's t-shirt and slid up his back. She pushed and nearly shoved him out of bed. Get up! She half moaned, half whined, still half asleep. The words floated somewhere outside Thomas's closed eyelids, their attachment to reality tenuous. A hand grabbed his shoulder and shook. Oh God, don't do that. Pain lanced through his head. His stomach lurched. The alarm clock beeped in the background, barely audible. Shut that thing off, please. Thomas, Jillian said, her voice impatient. Get up, you've got work. Mm, just five more minutes, he whispered. Even that hurt his head. Thursday dollar shot night at the in-between was never a good idea. You're going to be late. Thomas slid across sheets that probably should be washed and stopped at the edge of the mattress. He opened his eyes. His dirty underwear and socks were half under the bed next to his rarely opened anthropology textbook and an old Domino's pizza box. She pushed harder. Okay, okay, I'm going. His stomach sped things up. I gotta throw up first. Every crack, every pothole, every uneven surface sent sharp stabs through his brain and churned his stomach as Thomas drove his old, rusty silver Toyota Camry toward Murph's American sandwiches. He barely made it into a parking lot three blocks away from work before he threw open the door and the scrambled eggs and coffee Jillian had talked him into splattered onto the old faded asphalt the seatbelt holding him steady, bile and tequila coating his mouth, his teeth fuzzy. He stopped at a gas station and bought aspirin and something to drink, then made his way back onto Belt Highway at 9.47 a.m. He pulled into Murph's American Sandwiches 13 minutes later, the sight of the black and white building painful in the mid-morning sunlight. You gotta have a job, son, his dad had told him when he left for college in nearby St. Joseph a year ago. Mom and I are helping you with tuition, and we'll send you home with food whenever you come visit, but we're not paying for beer and rubbers. Thomas's first college job was sweeping up popcorn at the movie theater, 
hoping one day he'd run into Jillian. Back when he was 14, she'd closed a letter with, and maybe we can go to the movies. She never sent her address and never sent another letter. Murph's American Sandwiches came next. Thomas liked that gig better. He didn't really have to talk to people. His cell phone alarm started to beep. He popped open a container of peppermint Tic Tacs and threw four or five into his mouth to drown out the smell of tequila and vomit. It was time to go to work. Two. Bobby stood looking out his second-floor bedroom window at the enormous oak tree that brushed his window in a wind. When he was younger, he'd lie in bed during storms, clutching his pillow as the tips of those limbs scraped across the glass like the clawed fingers of some demon. His parents eventually stopped coming to his room when he called, his dad telling him to quit being such a baby. He was home. No more juvie, no more mental hospitals, no more loonies waking him screaming every night. Home. Home with his mom and dad, who jumped if he surprised them and could never look him in the eyes. His dad stuttered. He'd never stuttered before. And his mom dropped things whenever Bobby stepped into a room with her. She hadn't done that before either. Or had she? All those pills and treatments and the occasional ass-reaming by those naughty boys in prison scrambled the last of Bobby's circuits his parents hadn't already scrambled. He knew growing up under his mom and dad's protection from all the bad people, their world of 6,000 years, their leave-a-plate-for-Jesus, didn't do him any favors. That's why the hospital finally let him go. Bobby knew he was messed up, but he'd learned how to hide it. Smile, nod, keep your voice low, tell them what you did was bad, tell them you're sorry, don't make any sudden movements, and read the Bible. Nurse Carol loved him for it. She wrote a recommendation Circuit Court Judge Carrie Bingham thought was good enough to let Bobby out of the court system. Bobby, honey, his mom called up the stairs. Lunch will be ready in an hour. He pulled the heavy old curtains closed, throwing the room into darkness, save for the lamp next to his bed. Bobby didn't have to smell what his mom cooked. He read it in her mind. Casserole again. Noodles and goop, or rice and goop, or maybe potatoes and goop. Goopy, goopy, goop. That's all she ever cooked anymore. What are we having, Ma? He yelled back from his bedroom at the top of the stairs, even though he knew she'd say tuna noodle casserole. Nothing. Not a sound. His mom stood at the bottom of the dark brown wooden staircase, biting her lower lip, wondering if Bobby was going to kill her tonight. She wondered that a lot, Bobby knew just like he knew his dad was banging the office manager at work, Tanya, who had two kids and whose husband traveled. Bobby sometimes wished he knew how he knew these things. They just popped into his head, uninvited. But he worried that if he thought about it too much, the power might turn itself off. He didn't want that. Tuna noodle casserole, his mom said, finally. Bobby stared at the Green Day poster behind his lamp. Yeah, he'd thought Dookie was cool once, but he was all grown up now, 21 years old. He thought he should take the poster down. With crumpled potato chips on top, he called. More silence. Damn you, woman, speak up. Yes, she finally said. 
Bobby ripped Billy Joe Armstrong's snarling, mascara-wearing face off the wall. Put on a decent shirt, Billy. Original lays, right? Not ruffles. I freaking hate ruffles. No, Bobby, honey, no ruffles. Lays, just like you like them. Her voice sounded thin, farther away. She had moved from the staircase and stood cowering at the entrance to the dining room, an unlit Virginia Slims pinched between her fingers. He stretched his shoulders and picked up the heavy lamp on the nightstand, his dark eyes glaring at himself in the mirror. The light shone upward, casting Norman Bates' shadows across his grim face. Just like you like them, Bobby, honey, he mocked and jerked the lamp cord from the outlet, throwing his face into darkness. Good, he said. I'll be right down. Bobby pranced down the stairs, gripping the lamp like a club. He ripped off the lampshade and tossed it onto the dining room table. His mom had moved again into the kitchen. He walked in and found her standing by the sink, pouring herself a vodka tonic, a big one. Hello, mother. She froze. The stirring spoon tinked against the glass. She turned toward her son's voice slowly. Bobby stood just feet from her, his smile a cut across his face. The cigarette dropped to the kitchen floor. What? What are you doing, B -B Bobby? He slung the lamp over his shoulder. Trying to lighten your mood, Mom. Bobby, honey, you're, you're, I'm what, Mommy, frightening you? He slapped the lamp into the palm of his hand. She jumped at the sound. Everything frightens you. You're weak, mother, pathetic. Tears dripped down her cheeks. Bobby, honey, why are you saying these awful things? I, 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 la, la, la. Bobby took another step forward, his eyes bulging from excitement. That was from a song, wasn't it? The day my mama died. Bobby's mother screamed as he pulled his arm back and swung the metal lamp in a tall arc toward her skull. It connected with a dull thump, like he had dropped a melon, and she crumbled to the linoleum. She never moved again. Damn it. Where was the fight? Where was the begging? He'd wanted to say, thanks for letting me go to jail. I thank you and the convicts that raped my ass, thank you. But she fell instead. So he swung the lamp, smashing it into her skull again and again and again. The side of her head finally caved in. The blood and brains that flew from her shattered skull stuck to the microwave in Mr. Coffee like cake batter stirred by an electric mixer. Her body lay on the floor, blood seeping through her graying hair. Well, darn, he spat through heaving breaths. You spilled your drink, Ma. Who's going to clean up that mess? A laugh burst from him. This time, the laugh was real, loud, and it came from deep inside. The lamp slid from his hand and landed on the floor with a thunk. Bobby dropped to one knee and steadied himself against the kitchen counter, giggles gripping his chest. It was hard to breathe. Holy cow, he said between heaves. All the homeschooling, all the proper dress, all the babying, all the Jesus, all the goddamned casseroles, the whining, and her putting up with his dad's bullshit. It was gone. That was awesome. Why the hell didn't I do that before? Tears ran down his face, but not from sorrow. This was too funny to be sad, to miss his mother. His eyes shot to the clock on the stove. It was 10 a.m. His dad came home for lunch at 11 o'clock on the dot, 
Daddy couldn't resist his tuna and goop. Supper was different. His dad was always late. He had to have enough time to play hide the salami with Tanya in the break room on the table where his employees ate lunch. Bobby stood and picked up the lamp, the base dripping with blood. He pulled a chair behind the kitchen door, sat and waited. His dad always came in through the kitchen door. The first thing Daddy would see coming home would be his faithful bride's brains splattered across the floor. Then what would he do, Bobby wondered. Scream, probably. He was always a little bitch. Bobby's stomach rumbled. But he didn't want tuna casserole. He wanted a sandwich. He needed his strength before killing his dad. 3. You're late, Kavanaugh, Barry barked as Thomas walked through the back door, the screen banging shut behind him. He looked at his cell phone. It read 10.01.45 a.m. By less than two minutes. Nobody's going to die if they don't get their fat Elvis hoagie before 10.05, Thomas said. Barry was cool, but as Thomas struggled to see him without the world wavering, he wondered just how cool. Barry pointed a hairy arm at him. Don't get smart. Don't get up in my ass, Thomas thought, but didn't say. You don't have to respect your boss, Kyle had told him. He or she might be an asshole. He or she might be an idiot, but you have to do what they say. Sorry, Barry, Thomas said. I'll be on time tomorrow. Barry nodded. Fine, whatever, just get going. You've got an order up on the south side. The south side of St. Joseph was dodgy. Hookers, gangs, meth. Good God. He grabbed a black and white sandwich bag, insulated to keep the food warm, and looked at the ticket. A bee-roken onion rings? A human body shouldn't be able to tolerate that much grease this early in the day. The address was Carlisle Street, down by the stockyards. Just great. Four. Where is that little putzwhacker? Bobby Garrett paced the foyer of his boyhood home, his dad's fuzzy old man's slippers silent on the immaculate wooden floors. Hey, Mom, how's that casserole coming? He shouted toward the kitchen. A laugh quickly followed. Bobby stomped through the lower floor of the house, pounding the heels of his hands onto his temples. No attention. You can't draw attention to this house. That's the worst. The yard looked awful. That was okay. In this neighborhood, a mowed lawn was a suspicious lawn. Mr. Harrington down the street kept his yard cut to three and a half inches. Yep, suspicious as hell. Bobby thought he should break in and have a look around one night when the old fart was at his prayer meeting or at the VFW hall. Probably had a pot grow or something in there. Bobby shuffled back to the front door, his hands deep in his pants pockets. It was 10.20 a.m., he called right when that goddamned sandwich shop opened and ordered one of those closed ground beef and cheese sandwiches he couldn't get in the hospital or in prison. His mom's cooking was good enough, he guessed, but she was gone now, and sandwiches weren't her specialty. Good old mom was a casserole woman, born and bred. Murph's American sandwiches would have to be his friend until he found someone to cook casseroles for him. Bobby giggled again. He looked back out the window, his eye invisible through the curtain slit, and waited for the sandwich guy. 
At 10.25, he still wasn't there. Five more minutes, and I get the sandwich for free, Bobby thought. Although he didn't care about that. His mom and dad had plenty of money around the house, and they sure as heck weren't going to use it. A small 1980s car rolled by, slowly, rust getting the better of its once red paint. The driver, a gray-haired old woman dangling a cigarette out the window, wasn't the delivery guy. But he was getting close. Bobby felt it. Yeah, he felt it. A gnawing began somewhere in the back of Bobby's head, like a mouse had invaded his skull and started nibbling at his brain. The gnawing grew stronger and stronger. It was the delivery guy. He'd just driven by the tattoo parlor. He'd be at the Garrett house in five minutes. Something else tickled Bobby's brain. He just didn't know what it was. Five. Carlisle Street could be the location of a zombie movie. The few cars parked on the street were older models, some on flats, one on blocks. Behind rusty gates, four great greystone houses with wide lawns that had long ago gone to seed sat at the head of the street, a street that apparently had been affluent about a hundred years ago. Today, the fine citizens of St. Joseph had largely abandoned Carlisle, and Thomas almost expected at least one or two vampires to lurk there. Smaller Victorians, still two-story and Scooby-Doo haunted, formed a small cluster, their lawns no better cared for. The occasional mowed lawn looked like the part on an ugly head of hair. No human walked the crumbling sidewalks, raised in places from tree roots planted too close too long ago. Two men in baggy shorts and with unkempt gray beards, the only people out today, sat on a flower-print couch on a front porch, drinking natural light beer from cans. White paint peeled from the wooden porch of 4244 Carlisle Street like bark off a birch tree. Thomas checked the address on the receipt again. Yep, 4244 Carlisle. I need a new job. Six. A Toyota Camry pulled slowly in front of the house at 10.28 a.m. and parked a magnetic Murph's American Sandwiches sticker on the door. It's about damn time. The delivery driver, a guy about Bobby's height but thicker around the shoulders, stepped from the car and pulled a black and white bag after him. Clock's a tickin', Bobby said, not realizing his tongue involuntarily licked his bottom lip. The delivery man rushed around the car and up the driveway that was more gravel than concrete now. His black shirt and cap read Murph's. The man took the porch steps two at a time and knocked on the screen door, not knowing Bobby stood less than two feet away. The man, he seemed familiar, reached out his right fist and knocked again. I know this person, Bobby thought. He pushed his face into the musty curtain, his left eye inches from the window, the reek of burning tuna noodle casserole heavy in the air. He hoped it covered the smell of blood from the kitchen. Bobby thought he really should clean up his mom before his dad got home. The delivery man raised his fist to knock again. Bobby slid open the deadbolt lock and pulled the door open enough to take his food. Is that my sandwich? He asked, his eyes dancing around the man's face. Oh, yes. 
I know him. B-Roke and, and onion rings, the delivery guy said. He unzipped the bag and held up a paper sack with Bobby's lunch. Eight ninety-five, he said, the words coming out slowly. He recognizes me, but he doesn't know why. Bobby reached into the right pocket of his slacks and pulled out a bill he'd taken from the Ziploc bag of pin money that lay hidden beneath the granny panties in Mother's top dresser drawer. There was more than just pin money in there, he knew, but whatever problem Mother was hoarding for, she probably knew about Tanya, dumbass. It was over now. Keep it, Bobby said. The delivery guy took the bill, and Bobby snatched the bag, slamming the door and locking the deadbolt, his eye fixed in the seam of the curtain. The delivery man all but ran off the porch and back to his car, before Bobby's hand grew limp and the sandwich bag dropped to the floor. It was the dead alive boy. 7. Thomas's legs wobbled as he lurched into the driveway, his energy gone, drained. He knew that man, and Thomas knew the creepy bastard recognized him too. Eyes burned into the back of Thomas's neck as he crossed the drive and stepped onto the street. Is he watching me from behind the curtain? Had he memorized my license plate? Stop it. It's all in your head. Thomas fumbled with his key ring before he found the right one, a fat key with a black rubber bow. The key scratched the paint above the keyhole as Thomas tried to fit it into the lock. When the key finally found home and Thomas unlocked the door, he fell into the driver's seat, the taste of vomit rising in his throat. No, he whispered, but yes. He knew that face. He knew that voice. He knew those eyes. That was Bobby, from the Sisters of Mercy. Corn. The cornfield, with its razor leaves and coyotes, rumbled through his memory. The little girl. Doither, the teeth, the monster. It all rushed back. A coyote at the feet of a farmer surrounded by corn, its eyes blazing green, and it wore pajama pants. For a moment, just a moment, the coyote looked like Bobby. That stay in the mental ward may not have helped Thomas, but it seems like he hadn't helped himself much either. And that eerie murder scene, that part made me shiver. Is there a killer on the loose? Stay tuned to find out. So don't forget to subscribe to CamCat Unwrapped. Tune in to hear all our audiobooks as we release them right here on CamCat Unwrapped as serialized podcasts. The first two episodes of every book can always be found here, but subsequent episodes will be available for free listening only for a short time after their release. After that, they'll be gone. But don't worry, the audiobooks are always available for purchase on Audible and other major retailers. If you don't want to miss a beat, listen now on the audiobook platform of your choice. All our books are also available in print and ebook formats on camcatbooks.com or wherever books are sold. Before you go, please take a moment to leave us a review on your preferred podcast platform. CamCat Unwrapped also offers other CamCat books as podcasts. Also, 
check out our interviews with authors, editors, and other bookworms, and our background episodes, where we unwrap exclusive content relating to our books. Tune in again to CamCat Unwrapped, because CamCat Unwrapped is where book lovers meet.